0: Welcome to the third podcast in our special series on technology and human-centric transformation in financial services. I'm your host, Kavi Chavla, and I will be joined by Matthew Edwards, CEO of Trility Consulting, and Wade Britt, COO at Bataan Global. Today, we will be taking a deep dive into how financial services organizations frame, and execute the transition towards greater virtualization. Wade, we talk a lot about the virtualization of the customer relationship. That's a pretty broad term. Could you give us a little more specificity to what you mean when we talk about virtualization?
1: Sure. Uh, let's talk about this in terms of some wider trends and then kind of hone in on a few proof points. Banks no longer control the narrative around how things should be. Uber does. You know, the uberfication of people's expectations are what should be driving banks' understanding of what people demand. I mean, that sounds kind of catchy, but to give you a few sort of uh, more granular points about what that means, you know, service requests should be virtually initiated with clearly visible expected times to completion. You know, obstacles and changes to the route of getting the request completed, that that should be visible too. You know defined business processes and we talked about this a lot in our previous episode they lend themselves very well to being mapped on a timeline of events you know getting a small business loan where you've got an application anticipated terms review confirmation of terms you know underwriting availability of funds you know this is an example of how the trip can be mapped out and you, know, you can even incorporate elements of uh, cross-sell opportunities in that same trip uh, to not only provide a really good experience that resonates with the user, but potentially to boost share of wallet as well. Service experiences can be personalized. You know, the idea of who is the driver, right? You know, who's providing the service? Uh, what's their name? Uh, maybe even a photo. I mean, just because things are going to be virtualized doesn't mean they have to be impersonal. Um, And and on that same vein, you know, you can be really creative here because there's a lot of rich data to mine. You know, how long has the staff member been with the bank? You know, that can give some kind of a star rating for the person helping the customer. The customer can be rated in terms of the number of products within the bank. Um, So there's a lot of uh, interesting things that you could pull into that, even their satisfaction scores from previous interactions. Um CRM tools are really starting to do a great job of this with sentiment ratings and voice tone and vocabulary flags to kind of indicate how the the discussion is going. So, you know, the bar's really been raised by some of these um exogenous people to the banking system, you know, folks like Uber. And you know, the, the bar's not going to get any lower.
0: Right. I think that it sounds like a wonderful transformation of the relationships, right? And I think what, again, for me really resonated is that ability to integrate using data and technology across a customer experience all the way through to understanding how particular employees may be um, engaging with that customer and kind of having almost this world that I can see that's kind of come together that in the physical world, maybe is a little more disparate. While that sounds fascinating and valuable, it sounds extremely complex and difficult to create, right? So maybe Matthew, I'll turn to you. As financial services organizations kind of think about getting to that outcome, Where do they start and how do they think about creating the right process and what pieces of
2: technology and data and systems do they need for this to be effective? That is an outstanding question. And I love um, the analogy of using Uber or uh, or any of those other experiences uh, to identify or characterize this. That's that's actually outstanding. And I agree with you, Wade. It's not going away and that bar is not going to get lower. It's only going to stay as is or get more difficult, more complex, but the bar is going higher. As it relates to the types of things that people would have to solve or change or evolve, the reality is it can be very overwhelming for some organizations or seem like a short list, but then a short list that never ever ends, and so it's a a long walk. Um, for some companies, um, and really, it's not because some companies are so much farther ahead than others, but the reality is the expectations of consumers change daily, moment by moment, through time, and the technology that serves them changes nearly daily as well, so there is no done. There's just an arrival at the next defined milestone for an organization and that organization's relationship with their customers or their consumers. The types of, it's really choosing where do you wanna start? And I reflect on something Wade said in our last podcast, which really just, it really is the right thing to do, whether you're doing it virtually or at a marker board together is a process map. Or if you're not familiar with the idea of process, process map, actually just spend a little time and take the stakeholders that are involved in one process. So if the process is open an account, or the process is apply for a home loan, what are all of the steps to get from the beginning to approval and distribution of funds in order to pay the mortgage or to open the account? Where do we start? Where do we end? And what are the steps in the middle? And the very first thing to do is to understand what do we have to do today and then decide where do we want to be tomorrow. So if we take the Uber example, for example, or Lyft, for example, um, and say, how do I manage this entire experience through my mobile app while I'm living the rest of my life? Include who you are and what you do into who I am and what I do instead of making me stop everything, come to you and sit and wait if we were to focus on that and say our goal is flow our goal is now our goal is transparency and traceability to identify what those characteristics are so back up again what is the problem you want to solve let's say open an account next is bring in people from the different parts of that process or that path to say okay It takes all of us in order to implement this one thing for a consumer. What are all of the steps? And then look at a very simple and fun thing, and sometimes painful based on the realization, of the number of steps to do the work. How long does it take to do each step? And how many people does it take to do each step? And then my favorite part is what are the gaps between each do step i do step one now i'm going to wait until the next person takes a look at it then i go to step two now i'm going to wait until the next person looks at it so not only all of the do steps but all of the wait steps and if you truly want to get to a situation like an uber or lyft app to understand i made a request here's the car here's the driver here's the history show me the progress in real time until i am served and satisfied and happy, don't try and solve everything at the same time. First, understand what is it that you want to offer or provide to the customer? What outcome do you want? What outcome do you believe the consumer wants? And then how do you provide transparency through the entire process? And if you take your existing processes, map it out and try and visualize it into a mobile app, you might actually get overwhelmed in a very short period of time thinking, oh my gosh, the mobile phone screen is too small. I can't show all of this. Is that actually the problem or is there too much? And we need to reconsider what's actually required to get the job done. But don't try and solve it all at the same time. Start with one thing and concentrate on flow, concentrate on minimizing steps, concentrate on eliminating wait times, And then figure out, how can I illustrate this dynamically wherever our consumer is? Let's say on their mobile app, desirably they're sitting at a ball game or they're at the grocery or they're on their way somewhere else in the family car. How can what you need to provide them be included in their life? But start with one thing. Don't try and solve it all at the same time.
1: Indeed. And there's a lot of sources for inspiration uh, for how people might want to present this data. I mean, um, logistics companies have been doing this for decades. You know, if you send a shipment from Paris to Peoria, you know, you're going to see all of these checkpoints of being picked up and processed and on a plane and off a plane. And the funny thing is, is like that the provision of that information, it doesn't actually get the shipment there any faster. Uh, But when we think about human-centered design what it does is it gives a sense of comfort to the user uh, that their their request is being met they can see some tangible uh, progress and that has been demonstrated in other industries to to drive reductions in phone calls and questions about what's going on because you've made the effort uh, to to be transparent Um, you know, Domino's pizza, another great example Their their pizza tracker, you know, that tells you that Jeff is kneading your dough, right? And then he put it in the oven and look out, Mario's got it in his car. Um, it just gives that user a a, a sense of being well served Mm. that improves their experience with you.
2: That's a great call out. It's really being included in the journey. When, Mm. when we provide insight into the journey, People understand they're along. They understand what they've asked for, where it is in, in the in the journey, and when it will arrive. And it helps to manage, set expectations, and manage expectations, which is effective communication. Mm. But as people, we are amazing people. We want to understand all of the time, and then the absence of information. Um, No matter how amazing a person you are, intellectually and emotionally and so forth, absent information, we tend to try and construct our own narratives. Mm -hmm. So transparency and bringing people along is actually in the best interest of everyone and in particular, customer delight. Absent that, eesh, it's a tough time. People are hard and technology needs to be simple. But ultimately, it's about making me smile or making you smile. And if I have failed to make you smile at the end of this engagement, then I have not done my best yet.
0: So again, I like the idea of that inclusion in the journey, right? Again, it embeds me as, an, as a user in the entire experience. It's more fulfilling. And while for Uber and for Domino's Pizza, they work effectively and maybe it's more aligned to their organizational culture. A lot of financial services institutions aren't necessarily as demand driven or more supply side driven especially for mid-sized or smaller institutions that may have a, a core provider versus their own enterprise built core system right so one of the challenges that certainly we hear from organizations that are looking at trying to be more customer centric and virtualized is Challenges with their organizational culture. Could both of you maybe
2: speak to that a little bit? That's a good one. And Wade, you're certainly uh, welcome and maybe primed to go faster. Um, But one of the things uh, that we know for a fact is that uh, technology is not a limiter in adopting new ideas, particularly as it relates to flow and traceability and customer delight. We know that culturally inside organizations, It's actually a choice. And a great example may be considering uh, just different industries. But as we're talking about business and finance, even talking about the idea of business, finance, and insurance, for example, in commercial uh, construction, a lot of these industries still fundamentally require um, paper-based exchanges. They still require um, wet signatures, and in particular, even require um, notary visits and stamp pads. Mm -hmm. Um, We've talked about it multiple times up to this point, just changing those things changes very many things. But the limitation to document management workflows or the limitation to e-signatures or digital verification of identification in advance of validating or signing That technology exists and Wade, your illustration of what DHL or FedEx or UPS or any of these other organizations do domestically and internationally is spot on. The capability is there, it's a choice, but the technology is not the limitation. And that cultural change will have to be a top-down vision that is cast basically stating folks, How do we accomplish A with the fewest number of steps, the fewest number of interactions, and in the shortest period of time with the most transparency to the consumer? There still will have to be a top-down vision casting experience. Otherwise, pockets of organizations will attempt to improve. But other pockets of the organization will not receive that improvement with the same excitement. And so sometimes people uh, make jokes about this group tried to improve, but then other groups came out against the improvement, that type of thing. It's a people thing. It's not that people are uh, difficult. It's not that people are the problem. In fact, it's just normal humanity. Everyone wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want to know that their contribution matters and if they have a current experience where they know that they're valued, they've been recognized, and they've been reviewed, then they want to make sure that they're able to continue to do that and improve upon that without compromising their own success. So it's not that people are actually the problem, but rather from the top down, the organization has to say, we desire change. I don't know what it needs to look like, but I want to Fewer steps, fewer people, less time, more transparency and traceability. How do we make our experience look like DHL, UPS, Uber? Um, Casting the vision is really the key here. And then the changes after that are a choice. Uh, At least uh, those are my thoughts or my opinions or insights on that. Wade, uh, what do you think about that? It makes a whole lot of sense. And I think you're spot on that there's got
1: to be a very strong direction from leadership that helps people understand the vision of improved transparency and when you think about the financial services sector in general um, that can be challenging it can run counter to established culture i mean really any highly regulated industry uh, breeds a, a lack of transparency in a way you know the the idea that you've got these multiple checks you maybe even want them to be blind to improve internal security So it's very important to be conscious of how existing processes and technology have shaped the culture that is actually in use in organizations today. The good news about that is that technology can really help promote cultural change. And the best way to promote a culture of transparency is to demonstrate that transparency to staff internally first. You know, being able to deliver 360-degree views of customers uh, to banking staff that are in different functions will help promote that feeling of transparency is important. Um, any kind of internal processes that people have to go through, and and here we can get really personal. You know, things like how do people get their their pay stubs? How do they request? A vacation? How do they get their feedback on their performance? You know, these are all areas that technology can help make it more transparent. Um, it can really give that proof point that transparency is important to our organization. And once you've got your own people really feeling that and appreciating the value that it gives, uh, it's much easier for them to get on board with that same degree of openness uh, to the customers
2: serve. Agreed. Wait, if I can amplify on what you're talking about, I think, um, to some extent, you're talking about psychological safety as well inside these environments, whereby when, when we know there's a top-down vision that's been cast, everyone knows that that's the direction that they're being requested, enabled, and encouraged to go do, and they have the permission to evolve When there is not a top-down vision that's cast, people are conflicted. They do want to improve and evolve, but they're not sure, hey, if I make these changes, I think there'll be improvements. But is this outside the scope of acceptability or approval inside the org? And that's a tough place. So I think, you didn't use these words, but if I could amplify, I believe you're talking to some extent about psychological safety, which is, if I know it's okay, I will do my best to evolve and become more and make this better and faster. But if I don't know it's okay, then I'm selective about my risk exposure.
1: You're absolutely right. I love the the inclusion of this phrase psychological safety because it's so critical to having a an environment in which a positive culture can really flourish. You know, and and what I like about your reinforcement of the, the top-down statement of the vision, you know, that's often what we'd refer to as values that are stated. Uh, And then you have the values that are in use. And it's incredibly important to be congruent across those two to create the psychological safety uh, in which the staff can really thrive. You know, if those two things are out of balance, you know, then you wind up with cognitive dissonance, which is just an enormously uncomfortable uh, environment to be in and, and something that can really erode um, positive impacts of culture and performance amongst the team. Uh, so I, I, I appreciate you spinning it uh, a little bit down a, uh, a, a psychological direction, Matthew. Okay.
0: So I'd like to maybe pivot a little, um, and I think the, the discussion on psychological safety and transparency were spot on. But so again, assuming you can create the white culture, and again, it's, it's a dynamic relationship between both the technology and the corporate culture and they evolve together over time. When organizations start to think about implementing virtualization, again, a common approach that we understand or see is organizations tend to think about it kind of via size of assets, right? It's much easier for large organizations because they've got a bigger IT budget or percentage of their assets that they can spend on investing in virtualization from our experience, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the right way to frame or think about virtualization because there, are, you know, there's a spectrum, I would think. So Matthew, could you perhaps kind of speak to that a little in your experience around how financial services organizations or even others of different sizes can better approach that virtualization journey while still being sensitive, perhaps, to, to asset size
2: and budget? Sure. That's a uh... That's a really fun question. It's also pretty deep and wide, and so I'll uh, I'll cover a lot of things, and then we'll think of 17 other things we also wanted to talk about. Interestingly, though, on the virtualization conversation, there are a lot of flavors. That word is, is one of those difficult words that means a lot of different things to a lot of different folks, and to some IT folks and in the infrastructure operational side of things, that may mean Virtual desktops, it may mean people don't have hardware um, or they don't have unique hardware on their desks, and that's very specific. For some folks right now, that's talking about putting in place the infrastructure and the operation and security necessary for people to all work from home or work remotely, and no one is in the office. So we tend to chop these things up into um, task-based ideas or groups of task-based ideas, which is I want people to not have hardware, or I don't want to buy laptops for everyone, or I want some people to work from home and some people not to work from home, or everyone must now work from home. And those are task-based focal points, and they make a lot of sense, and that's how we drive a lot of conversations. I feel challenged in those conversations, and I like to challenge other people in those conversations to first talk about the products, services, and the consumer, and then the people serving the consumers. If I can take it back and make it a human-centric thing instead of a budget-based thing, or if I make it explicitly an information security thing, try and make it all user-focused, first. Um, And so what is the problem I actually need to solve? Well, the problem that I really need to solve is I have now the members of my teams working from their homes and all of my consumers trying to get services or products or uh, solutions from me from their home. How do I make this the smallest, simplest, most secure experience those folks can have? And if I were to focus on the consumer and the person serving the consumer and only solving the things necessary to make that short, sweet, slick, smooth, traceable, auditable, secure, then everything else falls off to the side. And so the very first challenge that I would offer to folks, and, and of course not everyone would agree with this, but my first challenge to folks and even myself would be, I'm not interested in talking about the task of virtualizing, I'm actually interested in talking about the outcome of a customer engaged my organization and solved their problem with a five-star rating in seven minutes. What did I have to solve in order to get from here to there? and all of the virtualization conversations fall out. And the interesting thing about that is if I just create a project that says, how do I virtualize my daily operation for all of my people at home? It's very easy for technical people to think about lots and lots and lots of technical things. Or it would be very easy for business people and technical people to not necessarily communicate their real needs versus their perceived needs So instead of creating all of these situations where one project may go too deeply into solving technical things and still not solving business things, or too deeply into business people saying, I need to have this and this and this, but it just not translating in the technical things, eliminate both of those conversations and focus on, I have a consumer who wants a loan, and I have a person who's going to serve that person to get them a loan. And I'm going to do it in seven minutes, or 17 minutes, or whatever the number is, but the fewest number of steps, the least amount of friction, the greatest amount of transparency. So take it back up to the human centric portion again would be my encouragement. Otherwise, there are myriads and myriads of uh, the cascading dependency trees of all kinds of technical things to solve when I use the word virtualization. But if I don't have a human-centric goal in place first, then a lot of these things turn into technical experiences or projects that become complicated and expensive and discouraging for everyone, including the folks trying to do the project. Focus on the human. Focus on the desired outcome and let the things you have to do cascade out from under it. You know, the the, the
1: problem with setting virtualization as a goal is is kind of twofold. I mean, first off, it there's no endpoint, right? There there will always be improvements, there'll always be another shiny widget that's gonna move that goalpost further away from you. Um, you know, and, and the other challenge with using it as a as an endpoint is is that it's just a tool. Uh, And what I really appreciate about how you framed your your response to the question, Matthew, is it's like you've you've got to take into account what is the business outcome that you're actually driving towards. Because implementing virtualization uh, across different processes could involve, you know, a, a half a dozen, a dozen different projects that might take a long period of time. And if it's being governed as a tool-driven project, your emphasis, as you quite rightly said, is gonna be overly technical and you run the risk of really missing the mark. But if you're being driven by a business objective, you know that you want to improve cross-selling, that you want to improve the quality of service, you're able to sequence the work that needs to be done in a way that allows for meaningful delivery of value at different steps along the way and i feel that that's how you really make sure that you're you're bringing your staff along with you you know if you were to lock technical resources into a room and have them build the most beautiful virtualized solution you know they might emerge 9 12 18 months later with and and find that they've lost their user base, you know, that they've lost the confidence um, of the people that they're trying to serve. But if things are fragmented in a way where every incremental delivery of technological improvement brings with it some business benefit, something that can be pointed to to say, look, this is a a, a positive signpost along the road that we're traveling, uh, then you should be able to keep the the wider staff motivated and engaged with the change that, that could ultimately you know, be a very time-consuming and lengthy journey. I
0: agree. I love the points both of you have made. And Wade, I'd maybe like to pick up on your, kind of your last point around you know, that fear of potentially building this beautiful virtualization solution and having lost user base. Right? One of the, the realities of virtualization is kind of the explosion of data. Right. As organizations continue to utilize tools, the amount of data that they collect, uh, that they need to store and manage, continues to mount as well. And there are kind of two questions that I have kind of following up on that. One is just kind of related to something you touched on a little bit, Matthew, is that is that sense of security and protection and management of data. The second then is thinking about going back to, again, that you know, user focus. that human-centric outcome-based focus you talked to, Matthew. The second question is around how do organizations, as they virtualize, need to rethink the structure, approach, utilization of data to not let it overwhelm from either a collection management storage or from a pure analytics perspective their, their organization? Yeah, that,
1: that's, a, that's a great question, Covey. Um, you know, the, the things that, that come to mind is we've, we've been undergoing this shift of information and data being uh, within walled gardens and organizations. You know, Whether it was a finance team or an analytics team, it was this idea that if you're a member of staff, if you're a loan officer, if you're a teller, that data is not your domain, that it's not yours and the wonderful opportunities that we have created by the explosion of cheap and abundant and and quick to access storage space is that data can be democratized and it becomes everybody's. Now, obviously you've got security concerns and regulatory concerns that you have to be mindful about, but we'd really encourage a a change of mindset to democratize data, make data sets available so that people can play. You know, we, we talk about this sense of psychological safety and, and if you've been able to cultivate that, then you've created a space where people feel free to play. And, and I use that word very intentionally because, you know, analytics is like this long and circuitous walk through a really dense forest. Um, and, and that might sound scary, but if you enjoy hiking or you have the right attitude, that can be a whole lot of fun. And we should be instilling in people a sense of discovery to actively play with the data. You know, you can convene different groups of people to ideate sort of questions that they don't have answers to and, you know, give people the opportunity to uh, do what they can do to synthesize, aggregate, and try to derive insight from that data. You know, you can, you know, employ higher level techniques like regression or other predictive techniques to try to surface learning in that way. And, you know, again, going back to this idea of it being play is, you know, you, you often don't ask a question and get a very straight, clear answer, you know, when you're mining these very large data sets when you're doing regression analysis on different things you often find that you start asking different and better and more specific questions and teaching an organization to get excited about data to be open about playing with it to have the the latitude and the safety to be able to take a swing at answering big questions and maybe they get it wrong, but they're gonna ask better questions after that and you're going to wind up in a place uh, where you're you're relying more on what data is telling you about what your clients are doing and what they need than maybe the the more historical practice of kind of relying on anecdotal stories of experiences um, which may or may not align with the reality of what's happening across different clusters of clients. Um, Because, you know, there are different clusters of clients uh, that will respond differently to different things. And, you know, the wonderful thing about all this data set, the wonderful thing about these statistical techniques is it really does um, arm people with an ability to stretch their brains, to expand their their ideas and come up with, with new and better
2: ways of relating to their customers. Those was a good call out Wade. The, one of the things that we've noticed through time is that, um, while there has certainly been a conversation about data analytics and business um, analytics and, and how do we take these things and learn from these things. And then it shifts into other conversations like machine learning and artificial intelligence they, it turns into a, a group of words that for a lot of folks, they're intrigued, they're interested, they'd like to know a little bit more, but they also have a job to do and they don't know what the words truly mean or how to implement them or why they even care. They don't wanna be left behind, but they don't know what it looks like to actually implement as well. And to try and take all of this stuff and just say, look, what matters? What actually matters? We try and simplify it down when we're talking with uh, people as well, uh, like you guys, like you do Wade, when you're talking with folks to try and simplify it, bring in analogies, help people see what it is in real life. And one of the things we do is tend to talk to people about something so simple as an asset inventory in their organization. For example, how many systems, applications, and data stores or databases are in your business today. And if you don't know that answer, you should know that answer as soon as you can, if for no other reason, to make sure that they're secured. Is it compliant with anything against which you're measured? And then is it secured, first and foremost? But after that, in order for you to say, where is all the data, what is all the data, how do I make use of the data? The first place you need to look is, what is in my house today? And that's an asset inventory. Systems, applications, and data stores. What's out there? And then when you go and look at the systems or the applications or the data stores and basically say, do they all provide logging? Yes or no? And if they don't, they should. And if they do, where is all of that logging going? Where do each of these things dump all of their logs, for example? And it starts getting in what it seems like just a a more technical conversation, but think about it like a car. Every car has an exhaust, and as one car passes you by, it leaves behind exhaust, and that exhaust is there. You can see it sometimes, smell it sometimes, it stays around, but there's always exhaust. In everything that's digital, there is exhaust. In order for us to turn this into a business analytics or data analytics conversation, in other words, in order to learn, we need to know what is out there, how many cars are on the road, first of all, which are systems, applications, and data stores. And then what are they putting out exhaust? What is the quality exhaust? Where is all of the exhaust going? And you want to capture all of that. So you want all of that exhaust to be captured and put into one place. And so you can say, ah, now I understand we have 200 cars in our fleet. All of them are putting on gradients of quality exhaust or not quality exhaust, and I need to fix that. But then how do I take all of that and get it into one place that I can understand? And so the really simple conversation that we start with folks on is how many things do you have in your house and are they all chatty? And if they're chatty, what are they saying? And where are those conversations going? So grab it all, normalize it so it's all speaking the same language, put it in one place. And only after you capture it, normalize it and put it in one place, can we even talk about how do we learn from it? But then after that, to your point about democratization, in order for it to be useful, it has to be available. In order for it to be available, you have to know what's there, You have to be able to get it. You have to be able to normalize it and put it in one place. And only then can you democratize. And by the way, too, it's a great exercise to figure out if you're compliant and if you're secure along the way as well. And so you may go fix a lot of things in order to even get just here. Mm -hmm. But after it's in one place, now we can talk about heat mapping. We can talk about event monitoring, which means there's a whole lot of stuff happening, but what actually matters And so that's heat mapping or event monitoring is filtering all of the data to know what matters and what doesn't, setting triggers in place and alerting in place and automated responses when possible, manual when you have to. Like, you're able to transform the entire business after the data is discovered, normalized, captured, and then democratized, but not until then. So if you have 200 systems in your house and you're only learning from three or five of them, that works, but it could be better. Mm -hmm. So the things I'm saying are simple to communicate, cars, interstate, exhaust, capture, learn, understand. But the work does take time. It's not super difficult work, but it is uh, time-consuming work. And it's uh, absolutely a journey of its own. It's uh, a fun journey. So to go experience the joy of learning and discovering and exploring that you referenced, Wade, as you know, there's a little bit of work that has to be done to just get to that smile on your face so that you can say, my gosh, I did not know this. That is amazing. We're totally going to pivot our business as a result of this realization.
1: Yeah, that, that resonates a lot with me, you know, and, and it, is, uh, it is hard work. You know, the idea of mapping out the different applications and how they're communicating or not communicating with one another, uh, really understanding data. You know, what's it called in that application? How does that relate to something similar in another application? Um, When we create this sort of single source of truth in a single repository, you know, what are the rules governing how those different data sets get integrated? And, and that, that is an absolute grind, um, and and it is necessary. You know, you're, you're just not going to get to where you want to be if you're not willing to, to put in that level of, of, of work at the outset to make sure that you're, you're capable of following the path.
0: Well, thank you both, Matthew and Wade. That was a great conversation. Just maybe from both of you, a couple of minutes of any closing thoughts for organizations as they kind of look to ramp up their virtualization activity? Um,
2: My perspective, a very uh, distilling question uh, still revolves around making the consumer um, number one and then making the people who need to serve the customer also number one or 1A, 1B, or 1 and 2, however you want to characterize it. But design everything around the human experience and solve the things that enable a frictionless, flow-based experience for the consumer or the human, as well as the person serving the consumer. Solve those things and let everything else fall out to the side. That is my encouragement, is the human-centric approach first solve those things and everything else will self-solve or self-identify as no longer important yeah and i think that's
1: very wise counsel for people embarking on this sort of journey Um, you know reflecting on our conversation today we we hit on a number of uh, points that that really support that assertion you know that it's not so much having a data strategy or a technical strategy or a virtualization strategy it's having a strategy that meaningfully impacts your your customers and your staff. And that those things can be very powerfully reinforcing of high performance cultures, um, of improved staff satisfaction and therefore retention. You know, there's just a, a lot of threads that these efforts uh, can weave throughout an organization to to provide a much richer tapestry than what people
0: have experienced in the past. So it's exciting stuff. Well, brilliant. Thank you both, gentlemen. A very, very enjoyable conversation. And again, uh, stress of ultimately both on the consumer or the internal side. It's about the people. Thanks. In our next podcast on technology and human-centered transformation in financial services, we will be joined by a panel of leaders within the industry to hear about and learn from their experiences. Thank you and be well.